Welcome, one and all, to Picard, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Star Trek universe. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hailing frequencies are open. The most advantageous battle stance is being one within oneself. Picard, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for Season 3, Part 6, The Bounty, is brought to you by Sour Mead. Pete, looking in the rearview mirror to yesterday's uh, podcast for The Mandalorian, an uplifting uh, amount of time spent in the Star Wars universe uh, in an episode that was really enjoyable. In a week that the wars, Matt, seem to have all the chaos on the bridge. Uh, indeed, also in a week where in the Star Trek universe, uh, increasingly people involved with Picard season three are talking about hashtag Star Trek legacy, whether they are priming the pump for an announcement that already is planned to be made or whether once again, uh, CBS all access slash Paramount plus does not know what the next step is and needs help from fans and producers and actors alike. Uh, I don't know, but I do know this Pete. Alex Kurtzman, in an interview with SFX Magazine, I'm going to assume it stands for special effects, uh, he talked about a bright future ahead for Star Trek, along with the heavy implication that First Contact Day on April 5th will have some big news uh, announced. Translation, they're making things, and soon they'll talk about things they may make. You've got to imagine, though, that for First Contact Day, if nothing else, we get a date for Strange New Worlds, maybe we get a, uh, you know, a month and day for Discovery. Maybe we get future projects announced, a lower deck season for date. Like, there's got to be, as Picard starts to wind down, but also is reaching a, a frenzy and a climax here, you know, just in time for a first contact day. That's the time to chart course for the next 6, 8, 10, 12 months, right? Unless we get a actual real world frontier day date, which would give Star Trek three holidays. Uh, that certainly is possible too. It could really be whenever you need it to be like, oh, frontier days now here. Well, I think there's an in universe date for frontier day, um, day and date, but time will certainly tell on that. With that, Pete, let's head into the mission briefing. A steady tone pulses from a USS Titan transponder as three starships warp in. Another is dwarfed by the Shrike as Vatic wants to know where her quarry is. Her goon tells her that they're shedding decoy transponders and jumping away at infrequent intervals to remain a step ahead. She tells them their brothers and sisters suffer every day having to wear the faces of the Federation, but she promises a day of rest of lifeless bodies burning in space and silence, unity and peace again. But first they will have vengeance. Her goon says Federation Day is 72 hours away, and they're no closer to finding Picard's son, which gets him vaporized. Vatic 
sits back down and wants the names and locations of every known Picard colleague, past and present. They will brighten the night with the ashes of the Federation, and from them they will rise. We cut to the Titan just off a red dwarf star, a really just wonderful visual here. In sick bay, uh, it is revealed that there is an explanation for Jack's visions, his history of nightmares, the bursts of aggression. No, Pete, it's not the puberty. I know he's a very, very young man and might be experiencing that, but instead... Listen, biological puberty lasts until 35. Well, <laughs> then that means he's halfway through it since he's 22 or whatever. <laughs> Wink. Are the actors uh, over it. Um, the diagnosis, though, it's a terminal a diagnosis. I know that because Picard looks at the screen, which is blinking terminal diagnosis. It is Eremotic syndrome, just like Papa Picard had. Pete, this is a major problem, but it's not a this week problem on account of the meds and neuro inhibitor given to him. It might impact him next week uh, or when Star Trek Legacy has its 30th anniversary <laughs> in 40 years. Let's hope. <laughs> I might sound like I'm figure wagging. What I'm saying is this is a very serious problem that the story is flagging for not a today issue, which is completely fine. The explanation, too, from Beverly is curious. These childhood nightmares, he had talked with imaginary things. She believed he was gifted, not plagued with an overclocked brain. Uh, as you said, the steps she's taken to uh, negate it for now, um, it is a ticking clock, but with some idea that eventually it will strike 12 and, you know, not what that is. The end of the discussion here between her and Picard is really that he not spend time unburdening himself when he can instead unburden his son, which leads him to holographic 10 forward where Jack is celebrating. He's not crazy. He's just broken. Some lovely writing here that he ponders that perhaps uh, like those Japanese teapots, his cracks will be filled and he will be put back together with gold or bourbon, which Pete is what he's drinking. Um, I don't think you can put things back together with bourbon. <laughs> I think some people try, though. <laughs> uh, Picard, of course, has been given a solution to this. Oh, it's the synth body. Right. There's no Pulsatronics. Oh, we'll discuss them later when we have not data, not lore, not before, not law thing. It's data plus now on Paramount Plus. <laughs> um Picard does note a bit more seriously that his human body survived with the syndrome for decades. Um, perhaps, though, Jack was doomed before being born. Jack walks and Seven calls Picard to the bridge because we're here, which is kind of a retake on the you should come see this cliche. But Pete, who are we here to see? Uh, they are there to see Worf and Raffi who have beamed over here for Worf. It's been 11 years, five months, and four days since he's seen Picard in the synthetic flesh, which back then was real flesh, minus his infrequent messages and the annual bottle of what he calls Chateau Picard 
extraordinarily tart sour mead. I'm sure the people over at StarTrekWines.com are just thrilled, thrilled to have Worf, uh, <laughs> you know, speaking poorly about. What kind of, look, Pete, I'm no great connoisseur of wine nor liquor. Can I just assume that the wines and liquors sold as commercial tie-ins, that they are not great quality, that instead they're just like, hey, we found somebody to make wine and we're going to make it blue and now it's Romulan. Put some, uh, yeah, we put some grapes through fermentation. Now you can buy it for the kitschy label. Regardless, uh, Beverly hugs Worf. Rafi is again I, Pete, I know we're being a little light with this episode it's because it's such a fun episode I admire how though the thrust of this scene is you know Worf and Picard Worf and Riker Worf and Beverly and so forth the story keeps Rafi in the loop by sharing with everyone how Worf has now undertaken meditation we also have an icy reunion with Seven the um, awkwardness of both the reunion and later the farewell and you know the further implication of that adds additional sizzle to this scene indeed one of these people at least might be on the next star trek show uh and it probably is raffi um but Worf is the one who ultimately really keeps things on track here great you're enjoying your reunion and so forth reflecting on the 80s and the 90s he says we must make sure Roe Laren's death was not in vain. Wait, Worf, tell me more. To the conference room where Worf recaps the changeling threat from Deep Space Nine uh, episodes past and that the new plan, mystery that it is, is tied to Frontier Day, which is now less than 48 hours away. Tick, tick, tock. Pete, can you hear that story clock a-moving? 24 hours really passed quickly there as they were looking for uh the titan um recapping too about how starfleet infected uh the changelings with a virus that there were enemies bad moves made on both sides there um and that uh picard brings up starfleet did deliver the cure to the great link but Shaw says not without weaponizing a few zealots. Um, the whole thing about Frontier Day and then this need to return to the scene of the crime that made all this spin into motion. Daystrom Station, where Vatic stole the portal device a few months ago, which they believe was a distraction for whatever it else it was that they stole. Seven says they need to get hold of the station's project manifests, which Beverly says was heavily redacted in the investigation row left behind. Um, the station's primary vault will not be redacted. And they explained the lethal AI guarding it for which Worf and Raffi have acquired the key. The card says it's the only way they can clear their names and save Starfleet. So he asks for volunteers, leading the Titan to jump in behind a moon near the station where Worf and Raffi enter the transporter room when Seven gives her that equally awkward goodbye. 
but Worf's gone into battle with lovers countless times, which he says can be therapeutic, but Seven's not going, which he says is a relief because he was lying. <laughs> and breakups on Kronos seldom end without bloodshed. Delightful Worf stuff here. Um, ultimately, the trio going on the mission is Worf, Riker, and Raffi. Uh, Worf mentions that touted line from the trailer that he now prefers pacifism. And uh, Riker is worried that they're going to die as they beam away. Uh, they beam into the reception room and are scanned immediately. There's a countdown to destruction here. Please identify yourself. No, really, really identify yourself. There's high-pitched noises and so forth, but the key ultimately does work. And I love the little thing here that once the security system, you know, is is back in the green again, please, no food or beverage in the research area. You don't want to spill it on, you know, whatever they have of Kirk in there, right? Get your, your space slushy all over him. Two Starfleet ships warp in and seven reports they've been found. Shaw wonders how and she reports they've activated transport inhibitors. LaForge notes they are Echelon-class ships with traceable payloads uh, that one hit, if it doesn't kill them, will allow them to be tracked. Uh, just like her daddy would have said, Picard notes he wants to run. He tells Riker they have company and has an idea to go to Athon Prime, but LaForge doesn't like that at all. Worf tells them security will be patrolling in less than an hour, and Picard promises they'll be back before then. They get away just as the other ships fire on them, and the away team is on its own with Section 31's nefarious table scraps, as Worf refers to them. Like the Genesis 2 device, 100% more Genesis, something... Uh, I guess James T. Kirk's body. We see skeletal and, and muscular holographic things and a genetically modified attack dribble. Uh, I'm sure we will talk in theories about the notion of, uh, of Kirk's body being there. I know people have gone in to transcribe the text, which appears on screen. Pete Tempest in a teapot has, uh, the memory alpha entry for this episode was all up in arms that they said uh, that they quoted from nefarious sources um, on screen uh, in this display here that the, uh, you know, Kirk's first five-year mission was uh, from 64 to 69. And everybody knows it's 65 to 70. Then it turns out, Pete, they got that info from four editions of the Star Trek Encyclopedia. So while I would agree, generally speaking, it was 2265 when Kirk's uh, first five-year mission started, um, they have a goof in there, but a goof from a really highly respected place. And we can just stand down red alert on that particular issue. Maybe we could just point to the fact that there's a reference that this could be Kirk and less on the years. Indeed. Indeed. Like how that might impact the next month of Star Trek and not, <laughs> not like, how can we like, cause let's, let's not forget that they didn't, when they made all of the original series, they didn't really have a time zeroed in for sure. And that's why in Star Trek two, when it says in the 23rd century, like that was the first time 
there was a solid chronology placed and we're all just having fun here like the possibility of again the next month how it impacts the next month of star trek is a lot more interesting than like what was the exact fake space year that kirk took control of the ship you know um pete we see the security feed which is spotting Riker, uh, and we get some more info there like his mother's name and the confirmation on his birth date which maybe we don't need to deeply get into since i don't think it impacts the plot a whole lot um but then a crow flies by a holographic crow and as i'm watching this i'm like this crow like not this particular crow crow star trek it seems familiar and then moments later Riker says this crow it seems familiar and i'm like yes am will I, we're on the same page am i on a star's trek <laughs> uh the ai activating the security measures here wharf with the great line that they won't be prey but instead friendly energy having Riker question everything um and they find the mainframe Riker hearing an f sharp and the one thing that still doesn't register for me Matt in a holographic environment yeah you can play sounds why did the station jolt? Because uh, Star Trek and shaky cam. I mean, your 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 concern is probably a very fair one. Um, shall we talk now? I guess it'll be best in a bit when we fully when we fully get some more digging into Moriarty here. We'll we'll dig into that uh, further. But we get Moriarty the reveal. Um, I don't know that there was a lot of anticipation as to how we would get him when there was the initial sharing of that in a trailer way back when, but he pulls a gun dramatic time to cut to somewhere else. Indeed. Athan prime home of the fleet museum. There's all the legendary starships you can see from far off. I appreciate that they hold off the nostalgia moment for a little bit later. Um, I also like both in story and how it's presented to us. Shaw saying, it's the old space dock. Like, oh, that's what happened to that space dock that we visited so many times across multiple shows and so on and so forth. Um, and Pete, wouldn't you know it, there's precisely one open spot, and that's where Titan is going <laughs> to take a spot so they can, uh, you know, needle in the haystack and all of that. Another ship there, they would seem to have a couple that can do that. You know, maybe that's part of, like, the, the display is like, ah, there it is. Now it's gone. There. Like, like every, every, every noon is when the thing appears. Like it's, you know, come, come see the fountains, come see the, the whatever, yeah, you know, look, the, the refit defiant just disappeared. Cause remember too, this isn't the original defiant. It's the one that didn't get destroyed that they said, ah, we will now call this new one, the defiant. And reuse all those model shot, uh, yes. shots. <laughs> uh, but with that, there's a hail. It's Jordy on the line, and he's not happy for reasons that fit with the story. Also, you know, we need to go from a state of conflict to a state of peace by episode's end. And uh, it's an interesting arc that they're going to give him. I think he had also come directly from the Jeopardy interviews that only added to his emotional state when... Uh, LeVar Burton uh, got completely, I believe the technical word is screwed uh, by Jeopardy and, and should have been the host there. But uh, their loss, Star Trek Picard season three's gain. 
after telling them to uh, power down all non-essential systems, the Commodore beams over with his other daughter he'll name in a moment. He gives Beverly a long overdue hug, deciding against the handshake, uh, and barely acknowledges Sydney, telling them they don't have much time. He's writing a third memo to Starfleet, objecting to gathering the fleet in one place for Frontier Day. And uh, all the ships that stop by the museum here could see them. Jordy and Picard head off to find a place to talk with the now named Alondra in tow. And Sydney bonds with Jack over not being on the best of terms with their fathers. Picard tells Geordi, Riker, and Worf are trapped in Daystrom Station and needs him to clone their transponder signal, but he can't without randomized security codes. And Alandra adds, every ship in the fleet is now fully integrated despite her dad's objections, which is how they were located. And we'll talk all about how Starfleet, uh, forget the changeling plot, needs to recognize that Jordy LaForge knows what he's doing. Uh, I like the weirdo sci-fi conceit that these devices can talk to each other only when, when passing by Pete, that's like how phones have a Bluetooth handshake with each other that many people may have experienced. For example, if you had the COVID exposure app, that's exactly how it worked, which was um, anonymous sharing of your info and you know so on and so forth so like this is a for as much as this is like oh man we can't because sci-fi techity tech tech like this is a, a real thing uh, except i don't think the not even i don't think the covid exposure app is not tracking actually who you are and sending it back to changeling hq and all of that but uh good use of science fact and science fiction and all of that we head back to uh the daystrom uh station we are told that security is sweeping the station um, and why is it that there's a hollow villain on guard? Moriarty is firing real bullets. They fire back. He can't be phasered, you know, since he's a hologram. Uh, the music starts to return too. Moriarty calls them pathetic old warriors. But what is that tune? What is that maddening melody? Riker remembers with scenes intercut from Encounter at Farpoint, which this is why they shot on film. This is why they did the digital restoration X number of years ago. Uh, Encounter Farpoint looks lovely in widescreen. I know Paramount's dragging their feet on, you know, doing an HD uh, redo for Deep Space Nine, let alone Voyager and so forth. But man, is the day going to come that they're going to widescreen everything? If so, that would be amazing. It did look pretty good here. I don't know that we necessarily needed that instead of perhaps the more dramatic Oh, I remember when I whistled Popped Goes the Weasel and then Data uh, had heard that. All of this amounts to Moriarty disappearing and the door to the mainframe opening. As he explains, he shared this song long before on a previous adventure that we get with some of that footage. I also appreciate, too, uh, for as much as I did not like Star Trek Nemesis, I remember at the end when Riker is trying, he's saying, what was that song? What was that song? He's kind of grasping at it, and that's where you go, oh, my goodness, they actually killed off Data for real. 
uh, which for the longest time stood. Now they since have killed off data two more times, or maybe that's only one more time. Regardless, um, we're, we're getting more data. Um, and um, we indeed have Brent Spiner here as, um, you know, data plus, data, data-ish. Um, <laughs> and I know it reminded me, Pete, when data appeared in the first season of Picard as a vision and so forth, how people were upset that Brent Spiner had aged. So I don't know what to tell you. Brent Spiner looks like he's about two or three years older than he did two or three years ago. It's weird how that happens. With his uh, hair being white and more discussion about that integration to come back at eighth and prime, Jordy wants to help, but could be court-martialed or Starfleet could go after his family. Alondra asks dad about Hangar Bay 12 that just gets dropped and left there for later on uh, before leaving as they debate uh, to apologize uh, to Sydney over um, his her father's stubbornness. Jack plops himself in the captain's chair next to Seven as she pulls the Defiant up on screen, which he recognizes. And then the USS New Jersey, which, Matt, I know you have a question for the creatives about. Yes, first of all, uh, if you're wondering why this random inclusion of the ship, it got mentioned in the TNG episode Relics where Scotty references an old Constitution ship here and named by New Jersey's own Terry Madelis. My question to Terry Madelis on Twitter, thus far uh, unanswered, uh, was this. Does the USS New Jersey's galley serve uh, pork roll or Taylor ham? Because that's an important difference. I do think somebody... One of our Twitter followers um, had replied, like, like maybe it's both. Um, but uh, Pete, we'll let people pause at this point and Google Taylor Ham slash pork roll and the gloriousness that is that one thing that goes by two names, one of which is wrong. Yes, definitively wrong. Uh, and reasons could be explained. Uh, we'll wait for Mr. Matalus, who's made the decision to include the New Jersey here, to weigh in. Uh, Jack's personal favorite is Kirk's Enterprise A, as a Constitution class man himself. Um, And Seven notes this is a lot for someone who doesn't give a damn about Starfleet, but he's always loved ships, even before he knew about his dad. And she dials up the Voyager on screen that she identifies for him Uh, as where she was reborn amongst family as she tries to find another. And he makes a poetic drive-by observation, just like his dad, before she pulls up the HMS Bounty, which was rescued from the bottom of San Francisco Bay after Jack notes the whole whale thing. Um, and that they had a hard time finding it after it disappeared, you know, not in the water, but because its cloaking device reactivated. So, Pete, look, I applaud the Kurtzman era of Star Trek to really be pushing the boundaries of what Star Trek is and really reinterpreting it for the 21st century. I'm thinking, you know, Discovery had the 
the the space born creatures and using this you know science and math and so forth to communicate with them to look down at the near microscopic level with the mycelial network and things of that sort to bring in you know reinterpretations of old characters and new kinds of performers to really have infinite diversity uh and infinite combinations and all of that and that, that's really wonderful but boy is this just the best old scene where we get the, the the one ship from the one show and another ship from another show and constitution class and kirk's enterprise a and the thing from the whales like this really was just like totally awesome and as i'm watching it cheering i'm saying oh man maybe there is a place for just pure on unabashed let's go for a fan service nostalgia because this is great not just because of their appearances, but also in the way that they use the musical cues. Stephen Barton here just outdoes himself. You got a little bit of the Star Trek Four theme. You got the Voyager theme. You got the Deep Space Nine theme. You got some other Star Trek, um, you know, uh, Kirk's crew themes. It was a phenomenally done sequence. Back to the Daystrom station we go, where Riker intuits that it was the data AI that was trying to communicate with them, which I suppose now, Pete, is the perfect point to say, what a great way to integrate Moriarty. I mean, yes, on the one hand, it was fan service, but 1,000% in line with the story like how many people in the universe in the star trek universe would recognize that moriarty you know it's the enterprise people that are there and how many of them pointed out by Riker as not the evolved moriarty so drawing a distinction there is important yeah and and just the idea that that plus the crow you know you can remember back to the data's dreaming uh, episode and all of that like just how how to use moriarty here it's not just hey the actor is still hollywood based and we can grab him for a day's shoot and so on and so forth and hey because he's a holographic character he can appear anywhere in in any whatever like it's a signal from the person who interacted with him the most data playing holmes and all of that it's just what what a really inspired use to you know to to give us 100% fan service, but not at the excuse of 100% here and now story. Right. Rafi sees this data as a hybrid synthetic with an Android interface. Uh, and Riker reminds them how data had copied everything onto B4, which is also there. But now, up to now, it's been unrecoverable. Uh, but we've had the ban on since lifted, making anything possible. Uh, and Rafi says that since Alton St. Asung's death, Starfleet co-opted his unfinished work and plays a message um, that before he gave Picard his golem, he had planned to use it to live beyond his years and some discussion here about evolution as the titan has found an empty docking ring at the museum indeed as we are shown different versions of klingon ships as we are shown in the exterior shots here different versions of star trek ships of the past and as you say pete as the titan has joined these other memorable ships a star trek 
hashtag legacy. <laughs> Indeed, to have Soong saying, you know, again, someone has made this decision here to take this this monologue and to put it over. It's not literally a montage, but a moving montage of ships to say that evolution is not an act of preservation. It's addition. This is this Star Trek saying we're not going to always do bring the TNG crew together. Um, we can add, we can extend to Star Trek. Hey, you diehards who only have only come back for Picard season three or have only come in the Kurtzman era for this TNG crew, we are adding to the fabric of Star Trek. Why not stay a while and check out all these stories? It's so funny that the Star Star Trek legacy thing, you know, they're talking about it now and, and all that, you know, oh, make, make more Star Trek. They make more Star Trek. Oh, no, bring back my Star Trek. They bring back their star trek and now it's but give us more star trek like star trek is star trek is what i have never understood with the people that draw distinctions like oh but it doesn't have the people i know oh but i want new stuff oh you did new stuff but it doesn't have the people i know it just seems like this cycle that some people are trapped in well and i mean it's weird that start that some Star Trek fans need to be told this over and over again. I mean, we, we've all seen the newspaper clipping of like, you know, Star Trek Next Generation doomed to fail right. and, and all of that. And yeah, then that aged well. And then that that's its own thing. And then, you know, Deep Space Nine fundamentally kind of reimagining what a Star Trek show can be, which, you know, we, you look back now and say it, it's it's probably the greatest Star Trek series of them all. But at the time, what's the response the response is uh let's go to a ship that's a uh, trek out well way out in the stars voyager which don't get me wrong i think and you know voyager stands on its own by and large and also i think it's smart to not like for example let's not do two station shows like you had a ship show you have a station show the ship show goes to the movies let's do another ship show and so forth but it's like we've been down this before and before and before um somehow still star trek persevereth not acknowledged uh, in dialogue, but visible uh, at the museum is the NX-01 refit mat. Um, in 2011, it was put into a calendar, uh, Star, Trek's, Star Trek Enterprises show, that enterprise, which had the show been renewed for a fifth season, was going to go through a refit where they were given a lower deflector area instead of just relying on the one at the tip of the saucer section. So that is there as well. I, I had not caught that and I'm glad to know it and glad to look back for it. Uh, second of all, you know, Star Trek enterprise had its own ups and downs. Um, it would have been cool to have had the ship evolve into that fifth season. I've always wondered why Star Trek seems to be, like the ships are so beloved and they're these spaces that we enjoy as viewers uh, to visit. I've always wondered why they don't do more things like that. For example, I know that Ron Moore and others had proposed that the season, since they knew season seven was going to be the last season, make the season six finale somehow involve the destruction of the Enterprise D. And then you can have the new Enterprise 
be a story thing in the seventh season, whether you have it ready to go for the first episode or you're, you're doing a trials or this or that, it gives you stuff to be like, Oh no, the warp drive doesn't work this week because it's new, you know, and, and got shot down because he was told by Paramount, do you know how crazy it would be to build a new set for a show? We're gonna, just going to build a new set for the movie. And it's like, wait, how is that different? Because <laughs> then you don't need to spend the money for the movie. How is that different? I don't understand how it's different. That would have been cool story stuff. Similarly, for any one of these shows, and I guess it's not going to be the, the, the Titan show where, you know, we're building a brand new ship, but I'd love to be like, you know, we got a little bit of it with Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise with, you know, flashbacks of here, we're laying the keel and we're this and that, the other. I'd love to have a Star Trek show where halfway through the first season, at the end of the first season, that's when we actually get our ship and we're watching it come together and all that as the episodes move along. So, uh, Sung has blended here uh, a bit of lol, uh, a bit of B4 lore. And a great deal of data. This coming off a discussion here where Jordy explains that Sydney was stubborn like him about what they pass on to their children. Um, added to data is the wisdom and the human aesthetic of age um, with the hope that someone would rise to be the best. Worf notes that Sung died before completing the work, and Rafi says the personalities are at odds in the vessel. Jordy says that he never feared for his life the way he does for Sydney's and wants to help Picard, but can't and must protect his children. Picard tells Sydney they are leaving without her father's help and must respect his wishes, but he's asked to speak with her in observation where he explains he's come to an agreement with Picard uh, that she'll stay there with him and say she was an unwilling participant in what's gone on on the Titan. But she knows what's at stake with the changelings after seeing a corpse look just like her, and she wants to help because she is Starfleet. Indeed, this notion that she grew up hearing about these stories of saving the galaxy for for uh, fighting for what is right, and she indeed is re rejecting her father's notion that it, it was a different time back then when you could save the day. No, do what's right every time to save the day. Um, Jordy asks, has she thought about how her family felt when the ship went missing and they, they thought she was lost? Uh, but Sydney says that this ship, this crew, is her family as well. As good a pitch, if any, for the I learned adventures. it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> uh, we go to Picard on the bridge, wondering uh, if they should take a firefight to the Daystrom Institute. Hey, Seven, let's step away and find Shaw, which leaves the LaForge girls and Jack uh, to put their heads together, some sparks between Jack and Sydney, dare say. Mm -hmm. But how well does Alondra know the museum? And what are her thoughts on minor larceny? <laughs> Raffi asks why Starfleet would install Soong's imperfect AI. And Riker says it was better than anything they had. But he glitched when he recognized them. Worf IDs him as the manifest 
as Rafi pulls up the schematics so it can tell them what the changelings stole. Uh, but they're found, and Riker can't raise Picard. Shaw, meanwhile, geeks out on Jordy as a former engineer who notes the poor condition of the Titan after a weird week. Just as Shaw calls for the LaForges to be transported home, the Titan starts to phase, and Seven reads massive amounts of electromagnetic radiation, but it's not Picard. The Titan cloaks, and Seven confirms it. Jordy accuses Picard of theft, which he denies, but they settle on Jack and Sydney, who have incorrectly installed the HMS Bounty's cloaking device. Jordy explains removing it tripped an automatic security alarm, sending Starfleet on its way, adding a number of treaty violations to his already Picard's sizable tab. There's so much that's wonderful about this scene. I mean, certainly Shaw in in his glory before Jordy, uh, I found uh, personally noteworthy, uh, noteworthy since I felt the same way the time I got to meet LeVar Burton and so forth. Um, but also the cloaking effect here is great. It's, I mean, if you, the way it's presented, it's somewhat subtle. I'm sure it's not a subtle effect in terms of, you know, the work that was put into it, but it's kind of like, wait, what is going on? And you're hearing the cloaking sound, but it's not fully in your face. Um, also too, it's giving a situation here where Jordy can be, changing his position indeed by and large he's now been forced to stay on the ship that sort of thing um along with i think i think one might roll their eyes a bit at like wait the klingon empire just let cloaking tech which fine is out there more than not but they let cloaking tech stay in the federation at this museum and it's like no 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 man there's treaties and there's a security alarm so like everybody's totally cool with it because nobody's going to mess with it. Now it's insulated in the story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really excellent job of insulating it uh, from there. Uh, We cut to the device, which is sparking and partially working. Um, But Sydney says, I don't know whether to do a to B or B to a who can help dramatic (laughs) reveal. Jordy can save the day Uh, and Jack stay away from Sydney. Um, as for Alondra, tell mom that we won't be home for dinner as uh, Jordy's saving the day here. Picard reaches the away team and tells them they've cloaked and uh, have 90 seconds to escape. Riker says they're taking data with them. Rafi says it'll cause Starfleet to come in, phasers blazing. Uh, and Worf says that he contains the key info to the Changeling's plot. As the Titan warps in and cloaks, but Seven says they'll have to decloak to transport them over. Raffi sees security closing in, and Riker takes it upon himself to hold them off. The Titan decloaks just as Raffi frees Data, and Riker gets hit with what is later revealed to be a transport inhibitor. Uh, the Titan beaming the others over and warping off. The exterior space fight here uh, also is kind of somewhat undersold. If you wonder why the ships aren't getting to them faster, I love the one shot where 
the Titan is headed right above the station and another ship is kind of zooming to get out of the way. So though we're not seeing the other side, uh, you know, the other bridges and so forth, one really gets the sense of like they're quickly overwhelmed by suicide maneuvers from the Titan and so forth. Uh, But in the transporter room, uh, Jack and Jordy receive Worf and Raffi. No Riker there, but having lost one friend, another has returned. Worf steps aside to reveal data to his friend Jordy. Uh, With that, Titan is at warp, and Worf uh, swears to Picard to bring William Riker home, almost as though it's going to be next week's B-plot. And Jack and Picard talk. Jack reflects on how he can be cocky, but also tenacious and clever. That he gets from his mother. But he can also be brave, loyal, and wise. Maybe he gets that from his father. And then, Pete, we transition to another uh, father-child talk as Jordy and Sydney catch up as well. Yes, he's not mad at her, but disappointed for not doing what he would have done when he was her age as they work on data. She admits to crashing speeders so she could spend time with him fixing them. Picard, Beverly, and Worf arrive. Picard admitting uh, this is difficult after watching Data die twice. But Jordy says that was the android, and he doesn't know what they'll get as he turns him on. Uh, the being recognizes Jordy and Picard, but is uncertain what he is. Uh, this um, Daystrom Android M510 designation that he speaks. One voice speaks more fondly uh, than the others. Picard asks about the robbery, to which he repeats over and over again, Jean-Luc Picard. Lore, B4, soon, and more emerge. And then I like the use of the eyes as a projector here for a hologram of Picard's body. Pete, I had to wonder, like the Worf, Worf saying, I will bring home William Riker. That seemed like such an end of episode moment. And then here, uh, more fittingly, um, in our last scene, you know, on the Titan, we have everybody, obviously minus Riker, but we have everybody available there and assembled for the big kind of almost end of episode uh, reveal here. Maybe wonder if maybe the order of those two scenes was initially written in another way, or if maybe the Worf Picard, Jack Picard conversation, was that maybe at the beginning of the next episode or at some point? Again, not a complaint here, just it was such a strong ending of like, you've lost Riker, but I'm going to get him in a near adventure to then like be like, oh, let's all go get in the elevator to go like look at Data before we really talk about next week's adventure. Um, they have talked, Matt, that, uh, this, the next generation's final mission might be certain members of the next generation's final mission. So I think there's a little bit of that at play, perhaps, um, which dovetails nicely into Riker, uh, being roughed up on the station for the location of Picard and Jack, which he refuses to give up, prompting the alien officer to point a phaser at his head, 
before turning on the other two Starfleet members and atomizing them and changing back into Vatic, who squeals in delight before the Shrike leaves Daystrom Station. Riker asks her big goon. See what I'm doing there, Matt? He's I do. Goo, and he's a goon. Um, how much they poured into him before the goon backhands him. And uh, he asks Vatic if she really thinks after 35 years of loyalty, he'll betray his friends. And then she uh, makes a force field less uh, opaque so that he can see that she has Deanna Troy. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Let's start with our our, our nicely used, although barely on screen this episode, Vatic. Yeah, that's the thing. Like so many of the threats are implied you know i'm not going to consider starfleet a threat in this episode where all we get are faceless ships chasing them that we know are compromised by changelings within them so vatic as the in episode present face of that um you know, Amanda Plummer doing her thing with the monologue at the start of the episode, the chase implied throughout the body of the episode, and then to menace Riker at the end. So what was this episode? It was bookended by her saying, I'm going to go get people, you know, Picard likes. And at the end, she's got a person Picard likes. Yeah, it's a super efficient use of Vatic. Um, again, in an episode that an episode that could have been, oh, we're all going to have fun at the Fleet Museum. Like, I know that's not the flavor of Star Trek Picard as a series, but this this could have been the Pleasure Planet uh, holodeck, you know, kind of easy sort of Star Trek episode uh, to have Vatic barely in it. Nonetheless, you know, her her force throughout it, and then. As I said before, Moriarty in the middle there. Yeah, I know it's faux Moriarty and so forth. Just excellent use. You know, I, I love that they did not stop at the starting point, which is, the, I'm assuming this guy is still Hollywood-based. Let's not forget Pete. He was one of the leads in The Nanny for all those years. Um, but to just say, we can get this guy and what? Not just stop at, well, he's a hologram. Um, to have authentic Moriarty, but maybe not, you know, fully rounded Moriarty that we used to know it, it's having your cake and eating it too. I almost wish they had not put him out in the, you know, promotion of this season. Would you have had bigger buzz around his appearance in this episode? Yes. It leaves you with the deflated notion of, so that's all it was there. I mean, there were people speculating he was the big bad behind all of this that he was the ai that is somehow in league with the changelings and you know some greater bigger threat he might even have been Gooface on the other end there and it's just all right we got a cameo 
maybe not show that next time. And that's not a complaint to the creatives because they have so little input into that. You know, the decision, granted, it's that other universe over there with Star Wars, but keeping Grogu a secret from everybody. And, you know, all right, this will not be actively promoted to start that series so it can have that big wow moment. You just kind of wish they had done that here. I agree with you in principle, but the fact that we have spent time theorizing about the 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 changeling changeling threat mixed with you know, rogues gallery, like lore and Moriarty teamed up and maybe we even get the conspiracy bugs too. Um, and I would argue that at this point with four episodes to go, we can probably start to sunset some of those larger theories. I mean, obviously Moriarty as, you know, co-threat, uh, in the league of extraordinarily bad gentlemen and all of that. Yeah. That, that that's probably falling by the wayside here. So the notion that we got, we got, one relatively small, delightful, but small cameo spoiled while also throwing us off the, the scent of the larger story. Th that kind of works for me. Pete, let's set our long-range sensors for some theories, and let's start with the big one. This is something that we had... This is an idea that we had flirted with prior to the beginning of the season, but now can we really have as a strong hope the possibility that while we still got him on God's green earth, William Shatner returns as James T. Kirk in the next month of Star Trek? So I have not watched um, the Will Wheaton post show but I know he's got a guest lined up for next week that he promoted that they, you know, redacted the image and says it gives too much away, but they also left Daystrom station. I don't know. I mean, we don't have an in-universe answer for what that was with James T. Kirk. He died on Viridian 3 in Picard's arms. Picard buried him, but Picard's body was also there. Like, can we for a moment talk about how creepy it is that they have the bodies of two of their greatest captains? Um, I know that memory alpha, was it memory alpha? Um, somewhere, uh, maybe it was on social media. I don't remember Pete, but, uh, somebody, as I, as I said earlier in the podcast had transcribed what you could get on screen and some of it was blurry, but reference was made to, I want to say maybe Project Phoenix, but certainly there, there was the notion of the on-screen display, which I feel like, is that top-tier canon? No, but did somebody involved with the show like make that to appear in this episode at that time? Yes. Um, but the notion that the body was recovered uh, after the events of Star Trek Generations, um, that's what it says on screen. It also, like, again, maybe has slightly the wrong years for when Kirk was in charge of the Enterprise. Although with the space warp effect, your time may vary. Your space time odometer may vary and so forth. Um, but, like, they chose to have Kirk there. They didn't need to have Kirk there. I feel like, again, if you're 
if JJ had all the right reasons for having Spock and not Kirk because of where the story was and the Romulans and all that and fine and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's right there, Pete. He's, he's there willing to work. William Shatner is, you know, I, I feel like we are closer than ever to like, again, if not in the next month of Star Trek, then when it would feel, you know, it would feel in a weirder spot in season two of strange new worlds. Like now is the time. Now is the place. Let's make it happen in the next month. I mean, you've got the Frontier Day stuff. Um, yeah, it, it remains to be seen. Personally, I think it might overpower the story. I, I hope and I trust the creatives here, if that's the decision they make, that they can integrate it. Um, let's talk about integration, Matt. And if Vatic, as finally established on screen by her ability to change from the security, uh, you know, personnel into her form as firmly being a changeling, like Terry Madalis had explained, but we hadn't seen yet. Okay. Why, uh, Matt, um, is her crew wearing the costumes they are and speaking a language that is different from her? Uh, maybe because science fiction. I mean, I I'm kind of equally at a loss. If they're all changelings and just hate being in this physical state, then why not have a goo face interface? We've asked this question in prior episodes, and that might have been so that we could have the reveal that they were changelings when the show wanted and not before. Okay, that's fine. Then why does she keep, why are they all dressed in masks and so forth? Maybe to keep people out of makeup chairs and to make it cheaper? I'm assuming all of this vatic stuff was probably shot in or certainly vatic on the strike was probably all shot at one sitting um i would just imagine maybe towards the end of the shoot just so you really knew what you needed and so forth but you want to make that easier so it's not five sets of makeup it's just one set of makeup cool like i'm not here to say how changelings should dress while in the solid state flying ships and so forth um it is kind of a bunch of question marks and i feel like it's it's in the okay pedantry zone for star trek i'm like the you know there's things like you said like no one really cares what year really some on-screen thing referenced when kirk started to be captain of the enterprise agree how changelings interact with each other does seem a bit more important given like a their history in star trek and b the fact that it's the major villain this season i mean they talk about the virus recapped here okay is this what their vengeance is about is this you know the holdover of that is it just bitterness after the war we we don't seem to have a real driving force for that and madalus has teased that vatic's story is you know one that we can empathize with okay so six episodes in we don't have that just yet we know that she's uh middle management <laughs> that there's somebody above her um so there's more story space to explore that for certain the eremotic syndrome explanation with jack though it's backed up on screen by science feels a little bit of a red herring um i would agree particularly 
Like, it explains things that have happened in the past. Okay. It then also, you know, I know I kind of made a joke of it, but it's very clearly on pause for this episode with Picard saying, you can live decades without it being an issue. You know, it's up to the writers as to when that's going to be an issue um, in the future. So it's kind of weirdly, if it is a springboard for the future, it's a weird springboard. If it is merely uh, invoked here so as to explain past stuff, okay, I guess. But then why did the past stuff have to be that way? Because you could have made it any, you know, med tech babble thing. Unless you really, is this the episode, you know, which has some of the best lines of the season, let alone the series. Is this the episode where we really are thinking about, you know, parents and children. And for all I know is Madalus sitting there as the, the Star Trek parent of this season. And there have been parents before him and there will be showrunner parents after him. But it's his time now and it's him talking about the show and his relationship to it. And as, as a parent would to a child, like if that's all well and good, fine. But. And if that's why to evoke the syndrome, I guess that makes sense on a certain level too. But I don't know that I don't know that quite so far out it all fits together perfectly. It doesn't really seem to solve the aggression part that Beverly brings up. Uh, oh, he has aromatic syndrome and it's terminal. Like we're concerned for him in the now, not that he uh, killed four people and then they were conveniently changelings. So I, I think that's a big aspect of it. It also is conveniently brought up in an episode where they bring in this, you know, multifaceted version of data before lore, all of that which, all right, you can hit all those different notes, but also has the the positronic synth angle of what Picard has come has become, what Sung could not, what, you know, he made here to harness all of his and his father's creations. Well, and sticking with data for a moment, you know, we had been told spiner is not playing data and i would agree that generally speaking what was presented to us in this episode fits that especially if you want to say with a wink and a nod in terms of you know we also got data back kind of sort of um (laughs) indeed i i think it's such a great way to bring back the character to also let brent spiner go through all these different you know acting versions just to see him go from data that we're so used to, and we've seen him obviously play lore a ton of times, but to see the transformation in one moment was just a reminder you know, of what a great actor he is. And again, it kind of is giving us this nostalgia, have your cake and eat it too, but also what came before counts. Like we still have data killed off twice, but we also kind of get him back. But, you know, along with, you know, the, the, bro- the, the benefits of a broken starship to story, when data for these remaining four episodes, when, when data need not be the end all and be all when it comes to strength or knowledge or whatever, well, that's when, Oh no, it's another personality coming through and he needs a reboot or things of that sort. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Matt, is there hope for seven and Rafi? 
Uh, I think in the writing room, it still is on the whiteboard there, and they're maybe keeping track of it for a and like a happy ending by the end of the season. Like maybe like, hey, I'm glad we're back together again. Montage of applause and things of that sort as we've defeated the changelings and that kind of thing. Um, look, it's convenient for this season that they're apart because that's what the story needs. And I think that occasionally in our discussion today, particularly in this theory segment, we've bumped up a little bit against cart before the horse, like story has a need. So we twist things around a little bit to get to it. And generally it all works. And certainly relationships have up and down, but have up and downs. I would bet that we see a completely functional seven and Rafi relationship next season whatever that show is in in the next season well you know from one ship to the other matt seven and raffi might be yesterday's enterprise but now it's all about jack and sydney or as i like to call them jack and <laughs> um you know because of the because of the high headroom of this season, which is to say have to do service to the returning TNG folks, there's not a lot of place for uh, the, the quote-unquote lesser characters to have much character development. I think this is one that makes sense. I think if, you know, if we are setting the table for a Titan-based series with you know, an acknowledgement of all of his uh, smarts and service and whatnot, Jack Crusher is now a lieutenant. Or he's Lieutenant Junior Grade, or maybe he's an Ensign too. He's the world's oldest 35-year-old, 24-year-old Ensign. Um, there's a lot of potential there moving forward, and you know, now's a great time to to dive into it. Could you imagine down the road that there could be a character with Picard, Crusher, LaForge DNA? I mean, you're you're like do we do we bring our a Riker daughter into this? Maybe we could throw some some Soong, uh, you know, positrons in there, and perhaps uh, a Batleth. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's the next generation in a future generation. <laughs> Star Trek: The Generation After the Last One. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, I think too. That's. For, for as successful as the nostalgia is for this episode and for this season, the notion of, um, you know, the, the notion of advancing the story, you know, not being about preservation, it being about addition, we're seeing the parts being put together here. Again, whether Paramount has secretly already greenlit it or whether they've secretly said, we're not going to tell you the numbers Kurtzman, but if you hit the numbers, then we're going to do another season, or whether they're completely clueless as a studio and need, as you know, NBC and Desilu before that, and Paramount Pictures TV division after that, da 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 da, and need it reiterated by the fans make more Star Trek. Um, clearly, the show is constructing that future for itself. Why does Starfleet? not listen to Jordy LaForge. Let's not put all our ships in one basket. Uh, let's not uh, integrate them to talk to one another uh, because it's not as if he doesn't know what he's talking about. 
you know, I think that we've seen, I mean, first of all, the, the deepest answer is because story, but in universe, the naive, the optimism of the Federation and of Starfleet that sometimes is naivete. We've seen it happen time and time again. And I think that that kind of goes part and parcel with the rosy eyed future is you just can't imagine the other side. And Pete, I feel like in the last five, six, eight years, we may be seeing examples of this in the real world too. You just can't imagine that the other side would be so indecent as to X, Y, Z or one, two, three. And for as much as, you know, the, 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 the best, instinct is to hit frontier day to hit this important uh landmark with real celebration of everything that's great in the federation i think it's blinding clearly i think it's understandable enough that it's blinding them to the threat that's out there who is sydney and alondra's mother is it leia brahms i need matt on the record um i would love it if it's leia brahms um I think my biggest worry is if they don't show anybody, um, then it kind of feels like, well, you had the opportunity to have all four members of the family there and you, you just what not. Um, if you're not going to go Leia Brahms and you want to go a completely new character, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps it's LeVar Burton's uh, real world life uh, who could be brought in for, you know, again, if we're doing some sort of, it's a happy, it's a happy, uh, celebration on frontier day and there's applause and so forth you want to have burton's real life wife stephanie cozart burton play that role um again i i i i don't presume that uh mrs burton cannot act but if you're like hey let's not give this person a ton of lines or maybe that's not in her wheelhouse then all the more reason to have the part be a bit smaller uh nonetheless what is in hangar bay 12 well, and I'm glad you asked that because it was such a strange, like watching the episode the first time, it feels like there's your Chekhov's gun. And later when they do something, the something later revealed to be the, the bounty cloak uh, device, cloaking device, you know, like that's where the story solution is going to be. But as you pointed out in the recap, Pete, instead we just completely skip over it. So it had better be something and be something super impressive See something um it, that certainly could be i mean again in this weird relationship of um not let certain information out but the but people in the production team that you know like they rebuilt the enterprise d bridge um one can only and then it's been referenced you know how the saucer the saucer remained there and it's b-level canon that the saucer was taken away and we even had reference to, you know, hot dropping the saucer section. We had that a few episodes ago. It's got to be the, uh, the Enterprise. You couldn't just deep. docking ring a starship saucer section. It just looked strange, right? Like, oh, UFO. Plus, I mean, look, I know the Enterprise D is, you know, when it was whole, it was so much bigger than the, you know, Kirk era ships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can we just say, generally speaking, that the saucer section would be obviously smaller than the hole and that maybe it's small enough that, yeah, you have it in a docking bay and not hanging out there. Plus, you know, this is a place where complete ships are on display and the incomplete ship shall not be. But, you know, if you get the uh, the gold level ticket, then you can do the bridge <laughs> tour and all of that, which um, I assume we're going to go back to 
back to uh, the Fleet Museum to visit that and to visit the new set, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's going to happen in the next four episodes. I did not know the Starfleet Museum at Athen Prime was run by creation. Uh, it, indeed it is. And that's, <laughs> that's why some ships only pass by and others are, are welcomed in and so forth. Is that really Deanna Troy, Matt? Would you only go and get just her and not their daughter? Does the story want to bring the daughter back? Or was that just like... Data has a daughter in that season of Picard. And now the Riker and Troy have a daughter. And look, they're like sister-daughter friends. Um... Again, like, or would we sit, you sit and go, oh my goodness, and it's Troy. You know, they got everybody. All the actors are back for this episode, and they're all kind of there. I know we got Troy earlier, and it was, you know, a hollow message and all that. Uh, but like, oh, they're all really there in person. Oh, and there's that girl that was in a couple episodes of Star Trek, like, two or three years ago. Um, I think they're going to say, thank goodness, our daughter, who has a name, Pete, Thank goodness she was away on the field trip to another planet. Kestro, Kestro was was away at for school, and that's why they only took me. Um, now, if your question is, is Troy a shapeshifter? I mean, anybody could be a shapeshifter at any one of these points, but my thought is the closer that we get to the end of this season, the less palatable it will be to say, Glad you enjoyed having Gates McFadden back for six episodes, but turns out she was never in it all along because, or you know, obviously it was Gates McFadden, not Crusher. It could be done. Should it be done? Eh, time will tell. With that, let's open Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. We start with the Twitter poll, Pete, in which the options for this glorious episode were as follows. The bottom one uh, was Goo Ship. Pete, they said something similar but different in the episode. That got 3%. Next choice was four stars captain, 9.1%. Uh, five stars commodore, 12.1%. And then six stars admiral, 75.8%. Some replies here. Uh, Kelly, who's at Antipodal, says the bounty was supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Rose Ferry, uh, at Anna Rose 584 says, I am right there with Seven and all the feels for Voyager and shipping Jack and Sydney to be the couple to start the legacy. Uh, referring, of course, to hashtag Star Trek Legacy. Uh, we hear from Time Traveler with bad intel. Oh, man, that's ominous. Uh, RMMIL978 says, This season is ridiculously overhyped. Best episode in years. Give me a break. None of the characters are acting in character. Bad writing being hyped absurdly. Pete, um, I stand by my poll choice that this might, for me, this might have been the best live action episode of Star Trek in the last several years. I'm sorry that Time Traveler with bad intel has bad intel. Well, I, I, I think they're telling you right in their moniker, maybe it's like an opposite day thing. <laughs> um, we hear from Arya Needs a Spinoff. That's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1. Gah, I can't believe I'm missing it um it'll live forever on the streamer just like all these shows that'll forever live on their streamer so don't you worry uh we hear from spider ham lincoln tess lc 139 it's rec it's broken record time this season is awesome it's been a perfect blend of nostalgia new stories and new characters seven's reminiscence of her voyager family is one of this season's best scenes so far talk about the trouble with a terrifying triple <laughs> i see what you did there 
Uh, Moriarty, just so glad that we got uh, what we got and that he wasn't a big part of the story. It was just right. Shaw bowing down to Jordy was another nice way of humanizing that dip S from Chicago. Uh, what's in Hangar Bay 12 at the Fleet Museum? A rebuilt 1701D. Ooh, I hadn't stopped to consider, Pete, if they would do a re... I guess you could rebuild. You could rebuild the, the engineering section. Sure. Uh, well, time will tell. I Actually, I, w- would that be better on screen? Look, we rebuilt it. it. That's better than, look, here's the head of the thing that got cut off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he goes on to say, a composite Soong droid golem. I like the unique way in which they brought back Spiner's characters. Hopefully he'll be more than just an information kiosk. Uh, when Riker was taken aboard the Shrike, how did Vatic know that he would be aboard the Daystrom station, that he would be captured? Was Troy's presence as Vatic's captive, being one of Picard's friends and loved ones, an extreme coincidence? Could the Troy and the Shrike be a changeling simply to force Riker to cooperate? Time will tell. Uh, Pete, let's pause his words there for a second. Is this another example of they had an endpoint and worked back to it, and it was good but not elegantly constructed, uh, or is Troy a changeling? I think it'd go either way. Could Troy have been like a Riker locator? That works too. Um, as Spider-Ham Lincoln says, time will tell. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm glad that we uh, average Joe viewers are now caught up to all those lucky blokes who got screeners for the first six episodes. Not anymore, ago. you're not. Indeed. Uh, two more out there for the fancy folks. Uh, Spider-Ham Lincoln still waiting for the big reveal of the conspiracy bugs. Pete, I still love it as a theory. Again, with every episode that goes by and that there's not that reveal, it's less and less likely, but it's it, it's 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 good work there to think that that might Listen, be when the animatronic head of James T. Kirk explodes and all those little bugs uh, fell out at the end of episode eight. Uh, yeah. yeah, I my mouth just dropped open. Uh, Brett Desmo Williams at BW Desmo says, I just can't say enough. Are they teasing a literal return of James T. Effin Kirk? <laughs> uh, moments. Shaw's nod to Burgle. Seven's reborn statement. Lord's smirk. Jordy hearing data say Jordy. Oh, and Vedix. Hi. Oof. Uh, he goes on to say, I'd like to add, I've seen some whining about Moriarty's appearance. I think it was perfect. The villain is a bit of silly from go. Having him as a foil for familiar interlopers is a great use. Last tweet, Pete, comes from J.T. Atkins. J.T.A. is me. What about the Easter egg? You mean the one with the old-style sickbay scanner heartbeat? Yikes, it's Chekhov's heartbeat. And sadly, <laughs> I don't mean Pavel. What an amazing season. Star Trek is many things, but one of those things is fun. And this is fun. Not resting until we get the uh, original series workout machine that's basically a, uh, a Stairmaster built into the wall. To the email inbox we go, Pete, we heard a couple times in the last week from Frank J. Chick, who says as follows, Good day, Matt and Pete. It's fair to say that uh, Picard Season 3 has supplied fantastic entertainment to date, and some five weeks uh, in the themes have touched upon the average Trekker strategizing in overdrive. At 57, it's fair to say the writer's room is pushing my buttons. At this stage, where I devolve into flippancy, Replace the changelings with the Sulaban, and you have an old Enterprise temporal war script. Star Trek franchise has a history of recycling scripts between shows. Also, for any espionage fan, Dr. Crusher's timeline, losing her parents at an early age, being brought up by an aged relative, is open to uh, invitation to full substitution. 
add to this a lack of third-party sensor evidence, you end up with perhaps a viable discussion thread that Dr. Crusher has always been a changeling, initially helped by a healer who lost all her family and recruited in the 2330s and 40s and evolved as part of a longer-term contract. Uh, in Star Trek parlance, lots of great thoughts there, Pete. And Frank goes on to say in a, in a second email uh, regarding this episode in particular, episode six, this episode provides so much fan service that it appears harsh to criticize it at all. I still think Beverly Crusher is a changeling as this resolves that Wesley unconsciously mimicked the Traveler's DNA, uh, one of TNG's huge potholes, with my comments on Jack as previous. Beverly's comments in this episode appear clumsy subterfuge that would mean that the previously prominent Jack Vision plot threads are now meaningless. So many destructive opinions were seemingly left at Section 31's black site, magically left intact, that any revealed big threat is probably going to... uh, is probably going to go down as badly as the burn. The series portrayal of the changelings also seems at odds with Deep Space Nine. Remembering that technology-wise, the changeling in Deep Space Nine by Inferno's light nearly succeeded in causing a sun to go supernova with a proverbial box of scraps. In addition, Amanda Plummer's character seems to be making up for lost time, breaking the don't kill fellow changeling rule. <laughs> uh, the changeling's fundamental ability to sabotage an infrastructure foment distrust and cause external conflict seems lost here my latest theory uh a locutus networked starfleet if uh, that is the end target well doesn't need proximity so why collect collect the ships together plus the crews will rebel and without maintenance the ships will soon cease to work you do much better with romulan sourced borg tech if changeling actions are a prelude to a massed invasion perhaps via the new transwarp conduit this can't be resolved in only a few episodes the federation is also not just starfleet so no doubt thousands of trade vessels. So alternatively, why not just drop a copy uh, mass-produced Genesis device on each enemy world? Finally, reopening the data storyline and Riker-Troy relationship with four episodes to go, 3.5 plus the series resolution, seems to be just promoting fan service over plot and just make the whole show bloated, but still an entertaining mess. Uh, I'll thus relax my theorizing, enjoy the view, and await uh, a yet unrevealed key plot point to arrive in episode 10 to save the day pete those wise thoughts there from frank j chick i mean there's a lot going on there i i like the crusher changeling theory that'd be an interesting way to go we hear now from uh, stacy who says this was a great episode a good balance of the tension of them running from starfleet and funny moments i had totally forgotten about john luke's syndrome although i'm not convinced that's the whole story with jack this was another great conversation between Jean-Luc and Jack. I think Jean-Luc downplayed his living with it, though. It didn't catch up with him until he was in his 90s. I do get Jack's reaction, though. As someone who has an inherited autoimmune disorder and was diagnosed in my 20s, I feel every bit of his anger. Something else suspicious. Seven called herself Commander Hansen. Closed captioning said the line came from Seven of Nine, but she says Hansen. Hinky. Worf and Raffi joining them on the Titan was a great mix of awkward and adorable. Then Worf provided the dig on Chateau Picard I wanted last week. It's quite tart. <laughs> Riker's response to Raffi telling Worf, uh, Worf telling them Worf meditates and now pacifism was on spot for him. Seriously? And we're all going to die. Ah, there's Sydney with the foreshadowing. We'd have to be invisible. Hmm. And then the story about the bounty being lost at the bottom of the ocean because it had been cloaked. I really thought Jack wanted to steal the whole ship but he's smarter than me and just lifted the cloaking device. Pete, let me pause her words there. I too thought that was going to be where they went. Mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't have hated it. It would have necessitated the building of a brand new set, yes. blah, blah, blah. But I mean, um, could you have yeah. taken the Shrike set and, oh, look, it's a Klingon ship now. I, I don't think a lot of people would have necessarily been able to tell the difference. The Klingon Empire demanded that we return the bridge console. So we put in this <laughs> this one to evoke the whatever without, the, you know. Ah, oh, well. I well, love remember, the, back- the, the, the bounty bridge changes from uh, Star Trek 3 to Star Trek 4. Well, there you go. Pete, the, 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 the swappability of bridge, uh, entire bridge, um, you know, sections, let alone bridge consoles. It's an important, an important thing. Got to swap stuff out like Legos. Back to Stacy here. Loved all the scenes in the Daystrom station. Very cold and creepy. And then there's even a holographic crow. Ah, Moriarty. Moriarty as a security system, just needing to get that tune out of his head. So good. And Riker, the musician, gets it and the reference. This was a flashback I could get into. It was delightful to see baby Riker and Data. Ugh, when did Jordy become such a stick in the mud? Oh, Black for blaming it on parenthood. Got to protect his daughters. His grown Starfleet daughters who chose their paths. I'm very disappointed in him for that. I get it, but I'm still disappointed. And he's only concerned about his daughter? What about the rest of the crew? Crew is not family. Jordy, sir, you know better than that. <laughs> At least he owns it later. Disappointed yeah. in himself for not doing what his younger self would have done. And then he has a nice moment between him and Sydney. Does Picard know how many, how many regulations they've broken? Please, of course he does. I enjoyed seeing Jack and Seven bond over love of starships, especially Seven's reminiscing about Voyager. Such a lovely moment between them. Her description of Picard's poetic drive-by observation and the way they made one feel seen as a sweet observation. Shaw wanting to geek out with Jordy was adorable. I like Jack's self-awareness and giving Jean-Luc credit for some of his good qualities. Another great scene between them. Why on earth would someone want to steal Jean-Luc's remains? Wait, back up a step. Why are Jean-Luc's remains at Daystrom Station? And hmm, I do not believe it's actually Deanna. Phew, so much going on. I'm more intrigued with each episode. Can't we see what's next? And as always, looking forward to your thoughts. That from Stacy, aka Stingray, aka TrekGirl88 on Twitter. I always appreciate Stacy's stream of consciousness chronology of the episode style notes here. Yeah, a lot of people seem to think that's not Deanna Troy. So that's going to be interesting to play out. Last email here, Pete, comes from uh, Josefina, who says, hello again. Finally, we got all TNG poker players in one episode again. But first, are we not going to talk about how about Vatic's uh, black and mild blunt she was lighting up? Uh, <laughs> I will say this, Pete. Uh, I, I noticed the, uh, the the lighter seemed pretty cool. Um, I'd be interested to know, did they make that? Can you buy that somewhere? Not that I have much use of such things. But, People you know, have cool. found the, uh, the knife that uh, Shaw had okay there you go it's all also come from somewhere and if it's not then you can license the heck out of it (laughs) uh josephina says i laughed so hard at wharf throwing shade at picard's wine again someone is roasting chateau picard i want to find out who the costume director uh, is because i sure like that biker jacket look where can i find rafi's engineer uniform biker jacket i'm enjoying all the nostalgia coming from this series so far, my favorite is seeing than hearing Seven talk about the USS Voyager crew. I must have rewinded it multiple times just to hear her say Voyager. Ugh, I wish they did a continuation of Voyager after they made it home. OMG, did you all see Jordy's angry face? I wouldn't want to be on his bad side. Um, the apples really didn't f- uh, fall too far from the tree by thinking outside the box, even if, if even if 
it was illegal actions. Jordy's like, leave it to you, Jean-Luc, to turn fatherhood into an intergalactic incident. Next generation of the next generation in one show. Please let the spinoff happen. Side note, when I was a little girl, I had these hair clips called banana clips. If you know, you know, that looked like Jordy's visor. Yeah. I'd wear the banana clips closed over my eyes and pretend I was him. Except I'd walk into furniture and walk. <laughs> you you know, during the entire TNG series, all the actors went through weight fluctuations, aging, etc. But Brent Spiner has maintained his physical appearance the entire time for obvious reasons. He did it so well. This time, they, the writers, allowed, allowed him to be aged. Thank goodness. It would have been funny if Data's first words are, Jordy, you are so old. <laughs> Leave it to Worf to ask about a reset switch. It appears John Luke's body was stolen, probably so the changelings could use it. We end with a little cliffhanger of Deanna held as collateral. Her oh, Will statement was more like an, we're too old for this, S. Will. <laughs> Overall, I think this episode had a lot of story development and more character, more new character introductions. I enjoyed seeing the poker gang back on screen. Hope the next episode is more action-based and we learn who Vatic's liquid boss is. I'm still holding out for a Janeway appearance. With, uh, and with that, I'll leave you with my final word from a treaty violator Picard. Well, I guess I'll have to add this to my tab. Pete, that from Josephina. Interesting that the first six screened is when you finally get everybody together and now that they've linked the next two together. Yeah. Is an interesting thing to think about. Pete, let's now hear from our mysterious voice from a far off land. It's time to hear from Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete and all listeners to fantastic geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Picard season three, episode six. I watched the episode as well as The Ready Room with Will Wheaton. How great is this? Really very nice to see LeVar Burton back as Jordy and with his real life daughter and his second daughter. And it is a very nice family gathering actually during The Ready Room. Also great is all the nostalgia. Well, if you go to a museum, you get that. But all the great ships, etc. Also, Seven of Nine, thinking back of her time on the Voyager. The whole Dominion thing, Changeling thing, is a bit awkward. Also, why are they in human shape? And why is their leader, this Vedic, smoking? A smoking Changeling? I know for story reasons it makes her more vicious and mysterious and evil. Great to see Brent Spiner perform all iterations of the Sungs, Odetas, Lors, Pivors. And the Deanna Troy at the end is only an image or probably just a changeling. I really wonder if these changelings have to have contact with the real person to mimic them or that they just can do that from a 3D picture or whatever. As said before, I'm currently watching Fringe and there was an episode also about changelings and they really had to have contact with the real person first to be able to mimic them. And of course, I like the genetic part between Jack and Jean-Luc, although it's about the disease partly. But he said he inherited possibly also positive traits. Okay, that will be all for now. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, I am tickled pink by Fred's uh, wonderful point there that if we're going to have a 
nostalgic experience in the episode, why not physically go to a place like a museum that is centered on, you know, reflecting on the past and on nostalgic experiences. That's a great, uh, great summation from him uh, there. And bringing up Fringe here, co-produced by Alex Kurtzman, the changelings there had a device you had to place into the roof of the mouth of the person you were mimicking. Um, so they've said in season three of Picard that it needed to be done on site. Could they still have Deanna elsewhere? So they've seen her and now they can, you know, mimic the appearance and try to get vital information out of Riker. Uh, it, it's a way to go. Well, Pete, our continued thanks to those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. We have a month left of this series and then presumably a fairly fast turnaround before Strange New World Season 2 starts. Uh, the time will tell there, but the continued human adventure, at least our podcasting adventure, made possible by those who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts of levels to choose from, but it takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door. Can't contribute right now. Get yourself over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating or review to any of our 33 podcast feeds. Let's certainly keep the Star Trek conversation going, particularly as we count down to First Contact Day. Pete, how can people be in touch with you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E 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 12,821 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. Don't forget the listener line. You can leave a message, voice, or text at 732-707-1815. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the P and the H. Like it today. Our next podcast will be, of course, on Star Wars Saturday as we talk about the next episode of The Mandalorian and then back here next Sunday, next Star Trek Sunday for Picard episode 307, a.k.a. season three, part seven. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. Another one, please, landlord. <laughs>